is Bruin Willow, and you are listening to the Oh Fuck Yeah with Bruin Willow podcast. I have a very special, amazing guest today named Kate Sloan. She has been writing for years and years about sex and kink and relationships and so much more. I am so excited to share her with you. She has an amazing career and has had articles in multiple popular journals, as well as her own website. And she's a podcaster. Oh, I'm just so excited. Okay. On my podcast, I talk about all things related to sex and sexual health and sexuality and erotica. Tips, experts, erotica authors, anything and everything to do with sex. Now, here's a little bit about Kate. Kate, I found on Twitter. I like to stroll around on Instagram and Twitter and look for guests who I think would be amazing to share with all of you, share with the world, people I want to talk to and interview. And I found Kate. Now, Kate Sloan is a journalist, author, blogger, podcaster, and educator who has been writing about sex online and in print for over over a decade. Her first book, An Introduction to Kink and BDSM, called 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, was released in October 2021. Her second book, 200 Words to Help You Talk About Sexuality and Gender, is forthcoming in May of 2022. As a journalist and essayist, Kate has written for Cosmopolitan, Teen Vogue, GQ, Glamour, Playboy, Insider, Self, Mel, Daily Extra, The Establishment, Mason Nuve, The Walrus, Horizons, The Plaid Zebra, Exo Jane, and more. She holds a Bachelor of Journalism degree from Ryerson University, where she concentrated on long-form feature writing. On her award-winning blog, girlyjuice.net, Kate writes about sex, kink, relationships, fashion, beauty, writing, and mental health. She also co-hosts two podcasts, The Dildorks with sex educator Bex Caputo and Question Box with YouTuber and game designer Brent Black. Her words reach over 50,000 sex nerds, weirdos, and queerdos every month. As an active member of Toronto's sex-positive community, she's an amazing guest and she's full of amazing things to say and she does a lot to say about kink and sex and okay, let's go. This podcast was brought to you by Pink Infinity Publishing, LLC, sponsored by Pink Infinity Publishing, LLC. The Sex Challenge Series by Ruin Willow. The Grocery Store Sex Challenge, Book 2, A Day of Play, a romantic comedy short. In this rom-com erotic novella, Book 2 of the Sex Challenge Series, where two consenting adults enjoy some secretive sexual play in public, the day of play continues for Brad and Anna, the second marriage newlyweds. Brad had all the advantages last round when the play happened in the kitchen, so Anna must dream up her best plan if she is to win this challenge, even though she gets caught with a vegetable shoved in her cleavage in the produce section. She's not deterred. She intends to win. Shedding her inhibitions and sometimes reveling in them, she slowly seduces Brad to cave into her sexual charms. 
but he's not laying down dead. He throws a few kinks in her toolbox during the playful shopping trip. When the grocery list is almost complete, they both relish the delicious rise and fall. They leave the grocery store more than satisfied with the outcome, optimistic for the rest of their day of play. And stay tuned for the next erotic rom-com novella in this series, where Anna and Brad challenge each other once more. Their day of fun is nowhere near over. Did you catch the first book in this sex challenge series? It is also available on Amazon, The Kitchen Sex Challenge. I am so excited, everyone. You are just going to love my guest today, Kate Sloan. Hello. Nice to be here. I'm really excited to have you. You have an amazing, I mean, amazing career. You're a journalist, an author, a blogger, a podcaster times two, (laughs) and sex educator. Yep. I I wear a lot of hats. That is for sure. (laughs) You do. And you have one book out now and another one in pre-order. Now, the first one that's been out already, let's see, that one is 101 Kinky Things, right? Yes. And then your one that's in pre-order is... 200 Words words to Help You Talk About Sexuality and Gender. Perfect. And it's in pre-order. When does it release? That'll be May 3rd in the US. I think it's slightly earlier in the UK. Okay. Very cool. Well, congratulations. That's really exciting. I think that's a great topic. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was offered to me as something to write about and it's definitely a big undertaking to define these terms. I did a lot of research, but yeah, it was definitely an honor to be asked to write it and I'm very excited for it to be in people's hands. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's something that everyone can use. And me personally, I would be a little nervous to write that because I don't feel like I have a good grasp on it, which also plays into how that's a good reason you wrote this book. Because I think a lot of people feel that way, you know? Yeah. Well, also, I mean, there's nobody in the world who has all the identities or experiences that I'm writing about in the book because there's just such a broad range of sexualities and genders. And so I was always going to like, no matter who I was writing this book, I would need to do a lot of research because, you know, just as humans, we don't have access to the entire spectrum of experiences. And so it was really fun to comb through blog posts and forums and whatnot about gender identity and different sexual orientations and different sexual expressions. Yeah, I feel like I learned a lot, even though I've, you know, been doing this for a long time. Oh, yeah. Did you find that you also were interviewing people or did you kind of just stick to more like nonfiction things online for research? I didn't I didn't interview people for this one, mainly because like there's just a lot of stuff out there already. Like I didn't really Mm want to grill people about their sexuality for the book when like I could read stuff that they'd written. But I do enjoy interviewing people for like more more journalistic stuff that I work on. Right. And so when I was looking through all the stuff you do, and you're kind of more focused on nonfiction sex writing, is that right? Yeah, I've delved into erotica and fan fiction from time to time, but it's not really my medium. Gotcha. And when you talk about your podcast, I think that's pretty cool. You have two, one called The Dill Dorks and the other one, Question Box. How did you get started doing both of those? So I actually began podcasting when I was like 12 years old. 
Oh, my wow. little brother and I had a podcast and we were, I think, the first preteen podcasters in the world, as far as wow. I know. So that was really fun. We did that for, I think, two or three years. We were like featured on the radio here when the there was like a radio station on, on the CBC doing like a showcase of local Canadian podcasts. Nice. So that was fun. But then when like we quit that eventually and I was always kind of like, I have this skill set or at least I have these experiences and like I would really mm-hmm. like to do another podcast someday. And I remember around 2016, I was tweeting that I, you know, had this dream of maybe doing a sex podcast someday. And my friend Bex, who I didn't even know that well at that time, he reached out to me and was like, I've always wanted to do a sex podcast too. Like we should talk about this. And he is also a sex educator. He was at the time a sex blogger. Now he's leaning more into making porn. Uh, So we have a pretty, you know, interesting range of perspectives and experiences on sexuality. And now we've been doing the Dildorks for uh, almost six years. And Question Box got started because my friend Brent, who is better known as Brental Floss on YouTube, he's like a, (laughs) he makes videos where he writes lyrics for video game songs and they're like funny parody songs he is super super funny and he had pitched this concept to me he was like i have this great idea for a game show podcast where like i have probably like a female co-host and we ask guests really personal questions and get to know them and he was explaining this to me and he was like acting as if he was gonna you know try to find someone else to do it and i was like well you said female co-host like are you asking me if i want to do it because like (laughs) i want to do it and he was like oh i wasn't even gonna ask you because i didn't think you would want to do it and definitely we should do it and i was like yes so that's been a really fun time also that's awesome now the question box is that one sexual in nature or is it totally not or do you touch into that we ask about a lot of different personal topics that you wouldn't want to discuss, like at the dinner table with your family. So yeah, sex is definitely a big one. Also, mm-hmm. like drugs, politics, money, family, emotions, just kind of like whatever we think is going to push people's buttons. Although we do check with people beforehand to see like if there's any topics that are definitely off limits because we don't we don't want to like trigger people on the on the episode Uh, that's not really our goal yeah you don't need a total meltdown or you know someone freezing or freaking out yep yep and then for your dildorks tell me more about that podcast sure so me and bex my co-host are both really really nerdy about sex that's (laughs) the name and we just always have been and i think that a lot of other podcasts that I've listened to about sex have been more like mainstream oriented. Like I'm thinking of like the Savage Love cast or, you know, ones that are like really popular in the mainstream. They tend to, I don't know, they're just not getting into the like 301 level discussions that you might have with like a kinkster who you meet at the dungeon a lot of the time. So we really like to do deep dives into topics like praise kink or service kink or uh, polyamory, like just different things that are affecting our lives. And we say in the tagline of the show that it's about sex, dating and masturbating. But I would say more often it's about kink and queerness. But, okay. you know, all those kinds of things kind of are related to each other. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. That was actually one of the questions I had for you because I noticed on your blog, you talk about sex as a service. And do you want to talk about that a little bit? And what does that really mean for people that don't know what that means? Sure. I mean, I think, I think it can mean a lot of different things. It can be referring to 
sex work. And like in the context of that blog post that I wrote about sex as a service, I was mainly talking about having fantasies about things like erotic massages or uh, like hiring someone who would be really good at fingering me or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also in the realm of kink, like service kink usually refers to getting off on providing service for somebody, whether that's sexual service, like going down on them just for their pleasure and not for your own, basically. Mm -hmm. Or it could be more like cooking someone a meal or like cleaning someone's apartment or, you know, just doing nice things for them that that make them happy. And there are a lot of kinksters who get off on that from either side of the slash. And I definitely enjoy feeling like a good girl in kink. So it's definitely something that I like. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of it's a sort of pampering of someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it can be for sure. Focusing on their pleasure or what they want or what they need. Mm-hmm. Not not entirely ignoring your own, but yeah, focusing on what they need or want or something that excites them. Yep. Yep. So I noticed that you are a huge sex toy connoisseur. I am too. I don't have nearly as many as you do. I have probably around 40, but I mean, that's pretty damn good compared to the average person. So yeah, I've gotten in quite a bit and it's just amazing to me how they're all so different and how everybody's body reacts differently. So, you know, you could read a review of one and try it and be like, oh, that's not for me at all. And interesting to me that we're all that different and and people need to I think people need to have sex toys to learn about their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's helpful about sex toy reviews is that you can read the same reviewer over time and get to know whether you think that their preferences are in line with your own. I never like it when reviewers are like this toy will work for everybody, like everybody with a clit should right. own this toy like that kind of thing. Like I understand making hyperbolic statements as a matter of style when you're trying to write something, you know, mm-hmm. snappy and interesting, but uh, you're right. Everybody's body is different. And so just what I try to do when I'm reviewing sex toys is just talk about like why I liked or disliked a particular toy. So that if someone reads something about my preferences and they go, well, that's totally not me, mm-hmm. then maybe they're going to completely disagree with me about the toy. Right. Right. And I, I get a hard time listening to people when they Sometimes I'll do a review and people are like, well, this is going to replace men or this is going (laughs) to replace people with penises. You know, it's like, no, it's not. (laughs) It's an enhancement. People get all up in arms, like thinking that, you know, they're going to be replaced by a a toy, which makes no sense. What do you say to people that do you hear that much? I do. I mostly hear it from cis men who are Mm -hmm. concerned about their female partners having toys. And what I always say to them these days is like, if you genuinely believe in your heart that there is something that a dildo offers that, you know, is, is exactly the same as what you offer as a whole person, as a, as a boyfriend or as a husband, whatever, then I think you have self-esteem issues because it's a dildo. It's a hunk of silicone. Like you really got to think about what else you're bringing to the table in your relationship. And if it's nothing, I mean, first of all, that's a sign of self-esteem issues, I think, but also it's a sign maybe you need to step it up in other areas of your relationship. But basically like when I'm craving masturbation with sex toys, that's like for me a pretty different feeling from craving sex with a human being. Like, Uh There's some overlap and like I do use sex toys with human beings as well, 
which I think a lot of people forget that you can do when they're having right. this discussion, but they're not, they're not the same thing. Like a human is just never going to be the same thing as a tool. The other thing I like to say, which I think is from Dan Savage originally is like, if you built a house using a hammer, like you still built that house. You just were using the hammer. It's not like the hammer right. built the house. So people get very stressed out about it, I think, because they feel like they're in competition with sex toys or they mm-hmm. they don't bring anything extra to the table beyond what sex toys bring or that they can't use sex toys during sex. And all of that is bullshit. It is. They're an enhancement. And sometimes I think when I hear that comment, it's like somehow they think it's impacting their ego. Mm-hmm. You know, and is that really what this should be about? No, this should be about pleasuring each other and or pleasuring yourself if you're solo, not it's not an ego builder or ego tear downer, you know? Yeah. And I also find that a lot of men who say this are men who think that the penis is like the only sexual tool that they have at their disposal, which again is like, I'm going to need you to pick up a copy of Girl Sex 101 and like learn (laughs) some stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, for me, I I always call myself a clit junkie because I love all the toys that are about the clit. So my favorite sex toy right now is the Zumio. What's yours? Mm. That, yeah, the Zumio is great. It's a little too pinpointed for me, but I really mm. think that the technology in it is cool. My favorite right now is the Lalo Sila, which is like pressure wave toy. But what I like about it is that it's like little mouth is like bigger than most are on that type of toy. So I feel like it gets more of like the area around the clit, like the inner mm-hmm. and outer labia and kind of presses into the body to get that kind of like internal clit action. <laughs> It's just like I've never really tried a toy like it. It kind of is stimulating areas that nothing else I've tried has like really done in quite the same way. So yeah, I'm a fan of that one right now. Does that one only lay upon the clit area or does it go internal as well? That one's clit only. I am also like a big clit person. Like Uh I, I do love a dildo. I have dozens upon dozens of dildos, but yeah, I am one of the, the majority of vulva owners who gets off primarily from clit stimulation. Yeah. And and I'll say about the Zumio, you know, it's very pinpointed, but lately I've been realizing another way to use it where you lay it down more instead of just having the point coming in. And so in that way, it does get the area around that. And it's, I actually even like it even better using it that way. So yeah, that's actually like the exact way that I was using it when I was trying to test it. Cause I was mm. like, I can't <laughs> handle the like super tiny tip. I know that a lot of people really, really love it, but to me, it was uh-huh. just like, it reminds me too much of like, boys from tinder in my early 20s just like jabbing away down there it's just not not really my thing (laughs) right right i totally get that i totally get that so tell me about you You were a host of something called the sex city radio what was that all about it was a weekly discussion of sex sexuality and their intersections with art politics fun and society that's what i saw what else do you want to add to that Yeah, I was just an occasional host on that show, which was really an honor to be asked to do it. It was like a local radio show that was like a late night weekly discussion with different guests in the the world of sex. And I was really especially excited to do it because I have a family who like with a long history of doing radio, like my Mm. parents met when they were both working at a radio station. And I think my mom's parents met when they were both working at a radio station. Wow. So it's like, yeah, it really goes back a long way in my family. And like my family was very excited. Like they understand that podcasts are basically what radio yes. is nowadays. But uh-huh. they were especially excited when I was doing like actual live radio. 
And it was really cool. Like I had like a tech person in the booth who would like bring in the different guests and I would talk to a broad range of people, sex workers, sex educators, people who own sex shops. And because it was live, there was sometimes like some kind of weird stuff that happened. Like <laughs> I was interviewing uh, Mark Wiseman, who wrote what I think is the best introductory book on erotic hypnosis, Mind Play. Oh, and okay. he like <laughs> I try to keep things pretty professional when I'm on the radio because it's the radio. And like these people don't really I think most of the audience doesn't have any clue like who I am or what the hell I'm doing. So right. I was asking him stuff about like, well, what can you do with erotic hypnosis? Can you tell us like some examples? And he turned it around on me on live radio. And he was like, well, I know that you're into erotic hypnosis. Like, what do you like to do with it? And I was like, oh, not prepared to talk about that. But yeah. you know, it was fine. I turned it around. <laughs> I can imagine. So yeah. that was done live, but it was recorded. And now the recordings are available. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was fun too, because I got to pick music to play during mm. the commercial breaks, which had to be mostly Canadian content. So I was just like reaching out to all my Canadian musician friends being like, does anybody have any sexy songs or songs that like have a sexy feeling to them? So there's a lot of really great music in those recordings as well. Oh, that's fun. So I forgot my icebreaker question. I always ask every <laughs> guest this is, <laughs> what is your favorite sexual position and why? Oh, it's a hard question. I feel like when people ask about sex positions, they're usually referring to intercourse. And like, mm -hmm. honestly, intercourse is not the most frequent thing in my sexuality. Like sure. <laughs> being being queer and dating mostly other queer people. I would say for an intercourse position, like I I love what they call lazy dog, which is like a rear entry position, except instead of being on all fours, you're like kind sure. of lying down flat. I just feel like that's like very intimate and like a lot of body contact and a lot of good like G spot contact and usually kind of like tightens up the vagina for the for the person penetrating, which is nice. But in general, like my favorite sex acts are definitely oral sex. Like I'm definitely more into oral sex from, from both sides than mm -hmm. I am into intercourse in general. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people call that prone doggy too. I don't know, everybody has a different mm -hmm. name for it. But yeah, 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 that is definitely a good one. Absolutely. You've been in quite a few publications too, as a Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Teen Vogue, GQ, and Playboy. What did you find that brought to the table for you? Was it more exposure or did you just enjoy writing for those or was it just felt like an honor? What would you say about being in those publications? We'll be back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure the man in your life grooms his carpets and his drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Have him clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch his confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and have him join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. With our special offer, go to manscaped.com and use code RUIN. You have to use my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, for the 20% off and free shipping. Have you ever been doing some oral pleasure and got some hairs in your mouth or your teeth? Well, 
<laughs> Manscaped can help with that. Try being clean shaven or spring cleaning after he uses Manscaped. You can say, hmm, let's get some busy with some spring fever in the bedroom. Try out Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It is an amazing trimmer that features two interchangeable heads one for taking a little off the top and the new foil blade to go smooth. If you want to go smooth for spring cleaning, make sure you try out Manscaped products. Bring on those smooth skin sexy slaps in the bedroom. And how do you do that? Use Manscaped products to shave clean down in your pubic area. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code RUIN. You have to use my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, all caps at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with code RUIN at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in his pants, right? In your pants if you're a man. <laughs> spring clean your groin area. Try smooth. Try it with Manscaped. I mean, the main thing is money. Like it's, you know, it's my job. So mm-hmm. sure. it's nice to to have work and to work for publications that have budgets to pay writers because like toward the beginning of your career as a writer, it's very common to run into publications that either like don't pay or pay mm-hmm. very, very little. Yep. And it's kind of seen as like paying your dues, even though in my opinion, writing should be well paid like right. pretty early on. <laughs> like pretty much, yeah. I think if you have the skill to write something that people find interesting and want to read, you should be paid adequately for that. But yeah, I think it's always good to have more cool bylines to add to your portfolio. It's just kind of, you know, a step up. And in on a more practical level, like what it has meant is that I've started to receive a lot of really wacky press releases. Like <laughs> <I> just <laughs> people are like, oh, you write about sex toys? I'm gonna send you press releases about like the children's toys that our company makes. Or like I got one the other week for like a oh. piano. Like a digital piano, like people are like, people are sending me like skincare stuff. Cause it's like, when you write about sex, it's like all kind of grouped into like health and wellness. And so kind of anybody in that space is kind of trying to reach out to me. And I feel bad because I'm like, (laughs) like 80 plus percent of these things I can never and will never write about. But like, you know, it's cool to see where this journey is taking me. Yeah. You never know. It might be something might one day, it might be something that you want or, you know, want to write about. So then it's a bonus. So I noticed you also write quite a bit about kink and restraints and dom-sub, daddy, little girl, role play, spanking and blowjobs are what I saw listed. (laughs) Is there (laughs) one of those that you love to talk about that you would like to talk about right now? Sure. I mean, I'm a big fan of daddy, dom, little girl stuff, and I'm a big fan of spanking. Those are probably my two main kinks and like probably the things that I'm like best known for talking about. Okay, sure. What do you find people who are starting to do this? What is the biggest challenges that they face? Or what are the biggest challenges that they face? I think most people are really nervous to communicate about their desires and to just have like a simple negotiation with a Mm -hmm. partner. It's already like a pretty big hurdle to jump over to just say to a partner, like, I think I'm into this thing. Would you want to try it? Mm-hmm. And then to have to, in addition to that, have a negotiation about like, what are we actually going to do right. is another another pretty big hurdle in terms of bravery. Uh, but it's just, it's so necessary. Like, I've just seen so many people run into issues when they say, 
I'm into this thing. I want you to do this thing to me. And then the partner's like, okay. And then they just start doing it without talking about it. And it's like, Mm. it ends up being not what they wanted at all. And like with spanking, the kind of classic example for me is that a lot of people assume that if you like being spanked, you like to be like a bad girl, like you're being punished. Like people would mm-hmm. people would start spanking me and say like, oh, you've been such a naughty girl. And I would be like, no, that's not my kink. I'm a good girl. Like, <laughs> and my partner now is like very intentional about when they're spanking me, they're like, just so you know, this is not a punishment. It's not because you're in trouble. I'm spanking you because you're such a good girl and you deserve such nice sensations. And like, sure. that's the kind of thing that we would have never like arrived at if I hadn't been able to talk about kind of the psychology behind my kink and talk about like what I wanted. And so I think it's really important for people to talk about not only safe words and safe signals and like, you know, what you'll do in case anything goes wrong, but also like what is hot for you about the kink? Because it may not be the thing that your partner thought it would be. Sure. Well, that makes sense. I mean, just all about communication and because, you know, I'm sure in some cases, people that don't talk about it, they might go too far or they might start to cause some sort of trauma and then you're in big trouble. Yep. Yep, exactly. And in my book, 101 Kinky Things, I try to give safety info for every single kink in there. And some of it is more physical, like, you know, don't don't tie the restraints too tight and cut off circulation. But there's a lot of it that is more emotional, like especially on things that are really have the potential to be really emotionally triggering, like humiliation play or cuckolding play. Like you really got to keep that emotional and mental side of it in mind, which often will mean more negotiation, more reassurance, more aftercare, that kind of stuff. What do you think of people who actually make paper or digital documents that are like a contract for that type of thing? Yeah, consent contracts are not a thing and are very antithetical to how consent actually functions. I do think that Mm -hmm. sometimes when people write out contracts, it's like really just a way of formalizing the agreements that they've made within their their kinky relationship. And that's fine as long as it is mutually understood that this is not a literal contract. This is not a legally binding document. Because Mm -hmm. the thing about consent is in order for consent to be valid, It has to be ongoing, it has to be informed, and it has to be revocable, which is really important. And that just means you can can revoke it at any time for any reason or for no reason at all without needing to explain yourself or justify it or anything. And when I see, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey Mm -hmm. showing off consent contracts as if they're like a normal part of BDSM... I'm like, yikes, because we're seeing a lot of consent contracts popping up in like, for example, the the men's rights activist discussions, mm-hmm. because it's like, this is how you prevent a girl from like accusing you of rape after the fact. And it's like, mm. Mm, I mean, first of all, you could just try not raping people. But oh, also geez. like, that's not how consent works. Consent is a verbal contract and can be changed or revoked at any time. Right. It's like it's in that moment. And I think the problem with a contract is you're not going to keep changing that paper contract or that digital Mm -hmm. contract, you know, and that's almost like too much work. And it's not in heat of the moment. It's not real time. Yeah. My partner and I keep our list of kink protocols and relationship agreements in a note in, in the notes app that we both have access to so that we can update it and it'll be like updated on, on all of our devices. But 
it's not set in stone. And I think that that has to be the way that your agreements are, especially in a longer term relationship, because you're just not going to stay the same people the whole time. Your relationship is going to evolve. Your comfort levels are going to evolve. And that's totally fine. That's a totally normal thing. Yeah, I think that's a good point because just because you liked something a year ago doesn't mean you like it now. You may have learned new things, new experiences, even new traumas or just, you know, yeah. Yep. Somebody I talked to recently said, and I think they were a sexologist or something, they said, you know, people in long-term relationships need to realize that you wake up a different person every day and reassess and interact with that person every day. You can't assume that you know, even yesterday that they're the same person. So that's the real time, you know, consent and real kind, real time communication that needs to happen as far as I can see it. Yeah. You just need to not make assumptions. It's, it's always better, I yeah. think, to err on the side of checking in if you're not sure about anything. Right. Exactly. And that, that makes sense for any relationship on any level, really. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the way it should be. So, When you're talking to people who are really experienced in kink or even the daddy little girl, what do you talk to people who are really experienced? Like, do you, do they still come and say, oh, what, you know, do you find people come to you and say, well, now what do we do or what can we do? Or do they, do they seem like they're kind of set? I think that, I think that a lot of people who are more experienced with DDLG have already sort of answered for themselves, like the major questions that tend to come up around that kink. Like Mm -hmm, one of them that that comes up a lot is like, do I have to use like daddy language or like, do I have to use, you know, little one, little girl, like age play type of language? Because a lot of people Mm -hmm. are like squicked out by that stuff. And I always say like, no. And like, you don't, you can call your kinks, whatever you want. You can use whatever language you want. And these terms that that I use in in my kink, like daddy, dom, and little girl, like the little girl one for me is definitely gendered. But like for my partner who's non-binary, like daddy doesn't feel like a very gendered term. So I always tell people to think about like, you know, what language is going to work best for you? And and sometimes people just say like, I think I just like the the vibe of like a caregiver sort mm-hmm. of DS dynamic, but I don't really like any of those words that go along with it. And I'm like, great. Like that's, you know, you don't need to go along with what other people are doing. That's the great thing about kink is that it's customizable. But I guess like an issue that does come up for people in DDLG dynamics or like caregiver little dynamics is like how to navigate breakups. They can be like really, really devastating, especially for people who have like a history of attachment trauma or, you know, being abandoned as as children or anything like that. Uh, and you mentioned earlier about how kink can like sometimes like traumatize or re-traumatize folks. Like mm-hmm. when my first daddy dom broke up with me very, very suddenly, like completely out of the blue, I was crushed. Like I was like really genuinely depressed for like a while. Right. Uh, and it was because it was like triggering really old like childhood wounds to come back up again. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I try to, you know, incorporate into my my education work now when I do talk about DDLG is like, just be aware. We're talking about some like pretty primal, like mm-hmm. old emotions here a lot of the time. Yep. And yep. so you do have to be like even more emotionally careful than you would with like some other kinds of DS dynamics, I think. Sure. That makes perfect sense. So this is kind of how I always view it. And, you know, I 
and not say I'm an expert in any way, shape, or form. But I think a lot of kinks develop because of things that happen to us as young people, as children. Do you believe that or what's your take on that? I think that as many kinksters as there are out there are as many different answers as you're going to get about this, basically. There are people who say, I was born this way. I've had this kink for literally as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. There are people who say there's one specific childhood experience I can think of that I think caused this in me. Mm -hmm. There's people who say that they discovered the kink when they got older. Like, this was my experience. Like, I definitely was looking back through the years and being like, oh, there may have been clues or hints, but, like, I didn't really realize I was kinky or sort of identifying that way until I was, like, 23. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, like, a lot of really interesting science that's been done on, like, where kinks come from. There was, like, one of my favorite studies that I found on this was this man who had epilepsy and he had a safety pin fetish that he'd always had since he was a kid like he was more Hmm. turned on by looking at safety pins than by sex with his wife and the doctors had found that when he would think about safety pins he would like have an epileptic fit like he would kind of like start to lose time and uh, just be (laughs) visibly having some kind of epileptic episode and so they did surgery on him to remove the part of his brain that was becoming active in these epileptic episodes. And after they did that, his safety pin fetish was gone. Like he just like wow. wasn't, wasn't into them anymore. So yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in like the, the neurological research that's been done on where fetishes come from. But I don't think that there's a clear like answer to that question because I don't think that there's just one answer. Like I think that it really depends on the per- person and also that even people who say I've been this way since birth, like may not really have a way to like verify that. And I don't think that we really need to verify where our kinks come from. Like, I do think it's interesting, but I think at a certain point, it's just kind of like, this is the sexuality you have. This is what you've got to work with. Like, let's just, let's just work within it. Yeah. I'm thinking of people who might feel so much shame about something like that, that they can't even like actually do the kink. And I'm sure that happens. Yeah, I I started to get a little bit of pushback on this from folks when I started talking about doing DDLG and doing spanking and stuff because like my childhood trauma did involve being non-consensually spanked and emotionally mm-hmm. abused by my dad. So people are like, sure. daddy issues. That's the only reason right. they need to be doing this. And I'm like, well, again, like I have no way of rolling back the tape in my brain. I have no right. way of like actually going back to the root of that and checking where it actually came from and Mm -hmm. even if i could again like this is my sexuality this is what i have to work with so for me there's not really much point in like dwelling on it but i know that that's also because i've done a great deal of emotional work to realize that no like wanting to call my partner daddy has nothing to do with my actual dad like nothing at all and I know that for a lot of people, it takes you know some work to get to that point where they can feel confident in saying that that is true. Sure. Yeah. It just means they maybe have some emotional work to do and to think about and talk about before they could do that. But yeah, I've always kind of wondered about that too. Like, it's like, you know, you hear about brain pathways and stuff. Is there a way to like erase a pathway with therapy, get rid of a kink you don't want? I guess this is, you know, stuff that nobody knows, but it's just an interesting thought to me. Yeah, I've seen people talk about like in very extreme cases, like if you have a desire that 
would be illegal if you actually mm. did it and and where you're getting to the point where you're thinking about actually doing it or maybe you are actually doing it like right. in some cases they like it is recommended to like do what's called chemical castration which is where you wow. basically like take some some medication that like takes your entire sex drive away but that's okay. like very extreme and whenever i see people posting on forums and stuff like how do i get rid of my kink like i think the question that they are really asking or should really be asking is like how do i process the shame that i have mm -hmm. around this kink or how do i get better at communicating with partners about what i want or finding partners who want what i want and i think that a lot of us have a lot of shame, especially about our sexualities, but mm -hmm. in many, many cases, the shame is more so the problem than the sex thing that you're feeling it about. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've been on a lot of podcasts and shows. Do you have one that's like, was your favorite experience or one that you really like? Doesn't have to be your top favorite, but one that sticks mm -hmm. out in your brain. Yeah, I always have a good time guesting on the Off the Cuffs podcast, which is hosted by some friends of mine. I think it's one of the best kink podcasts out there because it, again, is like people who are super, super nerdy about kink, mm -hmm. discussing kink and sex with like a really wide range of people. I think that those interviews that they do are like some of the most illuminating interviews. Like you can find people with almost any fetish in the Off the Cuffs archive and just like learn about that fetish, which is really fascinating. But I've been on there, I think, like four or five times at this point. We've talked about erotic hypnosis. We've talked about DDLG, spanking, knife play. I did an episode recently where we watched the Netflix movie Hypnotic, which is like mm. a really kinky and also really bad movie about <laughs> like a, like an evil domineering hypnotherapist. So we like watched okay. that and, and talked about that. And yeah, I just always have a t fun time like talking to other people who are just like really nerdy about kink because I just feel like I view most things in my life through the lens of kink. And so when I talk to other people who are like that, it just kind of feels like a natural fit. That's very cool. And definitely people should check that out. It sounds very interesting. Yeah. So how do, do you have any advice for people who are wanting to start their journey writing about sex, whether that be, you know, nonfiction or fiction? What do you tell people who might want to start doing something similar to what you do? I would say start your own blog and like the best thing to do if you are able to do it is to get a self-hosted blog rather than hosting on something like blogspot or mm -hmm. whatever like i started yeah. out on tumblr which now like doesn't even allow adult content <laughs> i know right? but this keeps happening with different platforms like the yep. internet is just getting more and more sex negative and yes it's a lot of censorship so i would really recommend going self-hosted from the beginning if you have the resources to do that and I would just say, like, start with what you know, like very classic, write about, write what you know type of advice, like review sex toys that you already own if you're wanting to review sex toys or, you know, write about experiences you've had or write about thoughts you've had that you've discussed in conversations with like other sex positive friends or whatever. <clears throat> and uh, the other thing that I always suggest is if you're trying to build an audience, I have found that it's very helpful to write listicles and also how-to pieces like stuff that people are going to share i i built my audience largely through those two things when i was starting out and especially through like whenever i noticed that i 
was interested in a particular topic of sexuality that was like not being discussed that much, then I would usually write about that. <clears throat> sure. Because my feeling was if I'm looking for this info, then someone else will also be looking for this info. So like an example was I was like, I think around like 2012, I was really curious about what lipsticks would really hold up well ah. during a blow job. Uh-huh. And I just couldn't find like almost any info about it. Like almost nobody was now there's like a whole bunch of different people who like <laughs> tested this. But at the time I was like, I can't find anything about this. I'm just going to write about it. So I like yeah. tested a bunch of lipsticks on a bunch of different blowjobs and posted <laughs> like before and after pictures and <laughs> reviewed them for longevity. And it's still to this day like one of my most popular blog posts. And I, I think that if you can find like the weird shit that you find fascinating, uh-huh. then other people will will eventually find it fascinating too. Well yeah, especially if you find an area that hasn't been talked about a lot. Then you know it I imagine that in the searches you're gonna pop up sooner because nobody else is talking about that. So you yes. know that's a huge value thing. The other thing I find when I talk to other bloggers, because I'm a blogger too, but to always write something or it's very good to write something that like solves a problem, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Yeah. Even- you're, you're writing, <clears throat> you're writing for a readership and they're not going to be interested in who you are right off the bat. Right. That's just kind of how online content works generally. And so, you know, if you write a really great how to post that, really has your voice in it and really conveys things that you feel are important, then the people who are really connecting with that are going to go, oh, this person's good. I'm going to follow their stuff. I'm going to subscribe to their newsletter or whatever. And that's how you get people on board and more interested in you as like a person or as a writer. But if someone's just coming in from Google or from you know a random social media search, yeah, you have to be able to sort of earn their attention mm, by providing yeah. something of value for them. Right. And that also speaks to where you're writing for free. I mean, you know, you do your own blog, you're going to be writing for free unless you can get some affiliate links and that kind of thing. But yeah, that you got to kind of put something out there that people like before they're going to want to read you again. Yeah. And I would say in terms of the monetization piece, affiliate marketing is one of the very first things you can do when you first start a sex blog. And so I would recommend getting started on that like very soon, like sign up for the affiliate programs, like she vibe or Babeland or the smitten kitten like i always like to uh, to support sort of smaller shops or, or shops that you know are known to be sex positive and to stock you know materials that are not gonna give you genital infections um, <laughs> yeah but you can start using those affiliate links like as soon as you start writing and it does add up over time like i do think i'm still making money from affiliate links that I posted like nine or 10 years ago. Like it just, you know, it accumulates over time. Yeah. And you know, most people can, you can do, you can do Amazon if you want, or another one I use is share a sale. I have a few through share a sale as well. Uh, And somebody told me recently, which I never really realized that they find that text links get more clicks throughs than images. Yeah, I well, I think that a lot of times people don't know that they can click on images. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no like visual indicator usually, depending on your CSS, that some that an image is clickable versus text. So yeah, that makes sense. That's a good point. I mean, some people might try it, but yeah, obviously everybody can tell a link is is clickable. Yeah, that's a good point. So, do you find that you spend an awful lot of time on social media, or do you find at this point in your career that you 
spend more time creating content? And did that change over time? I had to significantly scale back my Twitter usage over the past two or three years, mostly for mental health reasons. Like I, mm-hmm. I have fibromyalgia and it's gotten like much worse during the pandemic. And mm. if I have a day where I'm very stressed out because I've been reading the news on Twitter all day, yeah. like I will feel that in my body. I will be very fatigued. My, my body will hurt more than it usually does. And it usually does mm. hurt like a significant amount. So at a certain point, I was like, I'm <laughs> like, it seems harmless in a way to spend, you know, an hour on Twitter, mm-hmm. but it's not because I lose like more than an hour of like work time, basically, <laughs> to the effects on my body. And so right, I've had to like really kind of reorganize my life around the goal of stress reduction, which has included like installed the Twitter app from my phone and my computer. I only check Twitter either on like browsers or on my computer uh, for the most part. I don't know. Sometimes I'm bad about it, but uh, it's just, you know, I just don't have it in me anymore. And also like I used to use Twitter a lot more to like promote my work and I still do that because I have to do that. And like Mm -hmm. writers in general usually have to do that. But like with so much else going on in the world, like I just feel increasingly like bad about asking people to pay attention to my little blog posts and books and stuff. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being much more like minimalistic in my approach to social media these days. Cause it's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's just kind of a hellish place to be these days. Yeah, Yeah, it can be. It, it is definitely, it's a way to obviously to advertise yourself and try to collect people and try to get people interested in your work. But yeah, it can, it can be very life you know, it can suck the life out of you and it can be a cesspool at the same time. And you can, you know, you have no control over your feed. It just pops in there. You know, all this stuff just pops in there. I think the other thing that's frustrating is the whole a logarithm thing. You know, it's like if you don't keep posting things, then Twitter will show less of your posts to people who follow you. So you're not seen as active as active. It's like a downward spiral. Then you have less people to that are seeing your posts. So it's a, it's a game. Yeah. And social media companies are also famously very anti-sex, almost without exception. So if if you do post sexual content, especially explicit stuff, I mean, I know you know this, but you are opening yourself up, unfortunately, to be banned or to have your content removed or even just to receive a lot of harassment that the uh, that the website is not going to do much of anything about. So it's not a very friendly place for sexual content creators. But like I... I have a soft spot for Twitter forever because like I built my audience on there initially. I met most of my blogger friends on there. I met my spouse mm-hmm. on there. I met my sure. best friend and podcast co-hosts on there. Like, yep. it's just, it's given me a lot of value, but at this point I'm kind of feeling like maybe I should quit while I'm ahead, you know, like yeah. <laughs> how much more value can it really give me? I get that totally. And you know, it's, I'm in the writing community under my real name and under my pen name for erotica. And it's like, night and day. I mean, mm-hmm. the erotica community is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, for the most part, people are supportive. They're building each other. And you just, I don't see that on the other writing side of Twitter. So yeah, for me, Twitter is a really, it has a spot in my heart, even though it's got issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. It still has that amazing ability 
to connect and, and connect with all these people that doing something similar to what I'm doing. And they're great people. I just, it's been a wonderful experience for social media for me, for the most part, to be on Twitter. Good. I know that can change and that changes by day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it changes whether Twitter likes something or not. And, you know, yeah. it's very frustrating, but it is unfortunately a part of, you know, doing what we're doing and you can't completely get away from it. Like you said, not possible, <laughs> <laughs> but we are also in a great age when we can create content and put it out there on our own. Uh, we can self-publish books. We can create a podcast. We can create a blog. And you know that hasn't been around in our world for very long. Yeah, it's very exciting. I also, as a musician, find very amazing that musicians can do entirely like self-published stuff now and even like make it big from doing that. Like it's just really unthinkable. Like I remember in my youth feeling like, it would give anything for access to like a recording studio so that I could lay down some of my songs. And now it's like, it's not even that expensive to pull together stuff to make your own recordings and put them out there. And it's just really, really empowering for creative folks. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it, I think also when you're writing about sex, at least for fiction anyway, it's really hard to fit into what the publishers want. So you may write something that fits into what they want. Mm -hmm. And if they reject you, not likely that that piece is going to fit in the next publisher's design of what they want or what they're... Mm -hmm. So basically, you're kind of got this piece that isn't going to fit in anybody else's box. Mm -hmm. So you can go and make your own box and publish it. But it's very difficult. I think writing in erotica is just very difficult because... Publishers are so particular about what they do and don't want. Too much sex, too little sex, more story, more whatever. And it's just kind of mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been often really surprised by which pieces have gotten accepted and which have been rejected when I've tried to submit to erotica anthologies, because it usually is not the ones that I would predict. Right. <laughs> what can you do? I know what you're saying. It's yeah, it's, it's just very... Unexpected sometimes, but it's great that we can do it. I mean, we can publish things on our own if we want to, if we need to, if we want to do something that's totally not out there yet. That's also a huge bonus, like we were saying earlier. So what other kinks do you like to talk about? Do you talk much about restraints or do you tend to focus on things that are more dom-sub? I mean, I talk about a pretty broad range of things. I guess like one of the things I've known for in the past few years is talking about erotic hypnosis. Um, okay. Yep. It's, it's my spouse's main fetish. And so it's something that I've gotten into over the past four years or so. A lot of people are very mystified and confused by it. So I like to, to myth bust around that when I can. Yeah. Would you definitely, would you like to describe what that means for people? Sure. So Right off the bat, I should say, a lot of people think hypnosis is like fake or it's a myth or something. It's a real thing. It's been studied. Like it's mm -hmm. scientifically established as a real thing. It's used therapeutically. It's mm -hmm. not just, you know, the stuff you would see in a hypnotism stage show, although that is fun also. But basically, there's like a huge erotic hypnosis community. And it's folks who are incorporating hypnosis into their sex and or kink. And I would really recommend the book. Mind Play by Mark Wiseman that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, if anybody's yep. interested in learning like the basics of it, because 
I thought it was going to be much more complicated when I first got into it. I thought that there was going to be much more of like a regimented set of steps that I had to follow to the letter in order to hypnotize someone. But Mm -hmm. it's much more free flowing. It's much more intuitive once you kind of get the basics down. And there's a lot that you can do with it in terms of like you can dial up people's sensitivity in specific parts of their body or you can make them feel like they're tied down you can make a role play feel more real or more vivid. Some people even do a thing where like you set up a trigger where if you snap, your partner will have an orgasm or at least like have Mm. a hypnotic orgasm, which maybe there's some debate about whether that's like quite the same thing as like a Mm -hmm. a physical (laughs) orgasm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's a lot that you can do with it. And I have no like inherent sexual interest in hypnosis, but I really like the way that it plays together with some of my other kinks as far as dominance and submission or age play or like intoxication type stuff. It's really fun. You can kind of sprinkle it on a lot of different kinks and it'll it'll make them more vivid and and more exciting. Oh, I can totally imagine. Yeah, I'm actually going to interview a couple that does this. I think it's like next weekend. So I'm really excited to hear what they have to say and just learn more about that. I've, I've talk to a few people that have delved into that a little bit, but it's a very interesting topic. And I just kind of think it's really cool because you're using your brain more and your imagination. Yeah. And it's a very stigmatized kink, unfortunately, because there is mm. a there is a common misconception that hypnosis is mind control or oh, is inherently right. non-consensual. And People often like to say, like, no, you can't be hypnotized to do anything that you don't really want to do. And that's not really true either. Like, I think it's important to have more of a nuanced view because being in a, you know, psychologically susceptible state, whether it be hypnosis or feeling submissive to a partner or just sort of being in that mid-sex, like, heat of the moment mind space, like, you can end up doing things that you don't want to do just like when you get swept away in the moment, like it's just always kind of a risk. And, but people tend to disproportionately talk about the, the risks or problems with hypnosis. And so it's been banned from, it was banned from FetLife at one point. Really? Yeah. I, I tried to search the other day on Pornhub for, I was looking for a video featuring a specific dildo that I was writing about that was called the hypnotic something. And I typed that in and Pornhub, like a message popped up where they were like, it seems like you're trying to search for something illegal. Like maybe you should like, I forget what they said, but they were basically like admonishing me for a, ser- for a search term wow. that involved hypnotic. It's so, like a lot of the times if you're trying to search for hypnosis porn on various websites, you have to use like the little code words that are being used by people in that community, which like the last I checked, mesmerize was like a big one of those. But yeah, there's a lot of negativity and stigma about erotic hypnosis, even though like in my experience, that community is like so consent focused. Like I think as a response to the misconceptions about their kink, they are just like, Mm -hmm. as a general rule over and beyond, like really into consent and negotiation. Yeah, there's so much misconceptions out there. People don't understand. People don't even understand dom-sub relationships. They think it's abuse. They think it's something nasty. Or they just so flat out don't understand it, you know, and they just have a completely wrong view of it. And I run across that too. And, you know, some people think it's like a license to abuse. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's just kind of, it's hard to break those things out in the culture. You know, people are just stuck on that. 
Yeah, I like to use the example of like there's a difference between uh, being a boxer in the boxing ring and getting mm-hmm. into a fight versus like someone coming up to you on the street and punching you in the face. Like, right? It's just a totally different act. Consent and context mean everything. And I find it especially annoying when people are giving me shit about being a submissive woman and they're they're claiming that they're doing it under the guise of feminism. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know if you understand that feminism is about marginalized people having more choice and more equality. And that has to mean that even if somebody is making a choice that you personally would not make, right. they have that freedom. And it's, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to have concerns about Mm -hmm. whether someone may be feeling coerced or pressured. But if you are claiming to be a feminist and at the same time believing that women are incapable of making their own decisions for for their own lives, I mean, I think that you need to take a long, hard look at your feminism. Right. That's a good point. Absolutely. Very interesting. So when you plan your podcast, you know, cause I'm, I'm a podcaster myself. How do you sit down and do it? Do you both like sit down and talk about it or do you, do you plan it out or do you kind of just do it on the fly? How, how do you plan your, your podcast? I'm just curious. I like to talk to other podcasters and see how they do it. On the Dildorks, we switch off every week as far as who's sort of preparing the episode. And usually one of us will just send a text to the other one and being like, I was thinking about this topic today. Does that sound good? And just get the okay on that. And then whoever's planning the episode will put together a few questions that are like just sort of basic, like let's define the subject that we're talking about today and like what are your experiences with it? And then usually we'll answer some listener questions, which we put out a call for every almost every week uh, because our listeners just have really interesting questions about these things. And yeah, we try to keep it fairly loose and conversational and like if the conversation's mm-hmm. going in a different direction than we anticipated then we'll often try to you know follow it and question box we're definitely a lot more regimented like because it is a game show like we already know in advance like which questions we're going to be asking and they're like organized into categories and like we pre-write a lot of the the stuff on that show so that once it starts it'll just sort of like fall like a domino line of mm-hmm. dominoes but yeah the dildorks is much more loosey-goosey and much more just kind of like whatever we're feeling interested in that week. Sure. Sounds fun. It sounds like a, it's nice to be able to just do what you want at the last moment and just go with the flow. Cause you never know what's going to come up, especially when you're getting questions from an audience, you know, you just, that's a great starting point sometimes to a launch pad to yep. talk. So is there another topic or article on your blog that you felt was really helpful for people or that you find that's really popular? I know you talked about the lipstick one. Is there another one? Yeah. People are always really interested in what I write about the A-spot or the anterior fornix. Oh, yes. Which Mm -hmm. is, it's an erogenous zone uh, on the front wall of the vagina, but deeper than the G-spot, like sort of tucked right in front of the cervix. Mm -hmm. And That's another one of those things that like when I first started writing about it, it was because I could find almost no information out there about Ah. it. I had just like noticed during sex that deep penetration was working better for me than G-spot simulation. And I didn't really know why. And I I started Mm. looking into the anatomy of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
because I'm a nerd and I minored in psychology <laughs> in school, I always like to read like research studies. And I started reading like the original research study where this Malaysian doctor like quote unquote discovered the A spot and wrote about mm, like okay. the effects in terms of pleasure and lubrication. And I started writing about like what is the A spot? How does it like to be stimulated? What toys work well for it? Which is a little tricky because I am pretty much only writing from my own experiences and from mm. like the occasional email that I get from a li listener or reader talking about their experiences because there's mm -hmm. just not as much info out there as there is about like the G spot or the prostate. Sure. Um, but people are often really happy to like be validated in finding that zone pleasurable when they read my stuff. And I was actually able to co-design a sex toy with mm. a company called The Pleasure Tailor that is aimed at stimulating the A spot. And it has a handle that is meant to be easier to operate even for folks with chronic pain or like strength issues in their hands, which is something that I deal with. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that was really fun. And um, yeah, it's just, it's really nice to be getting the word out there about A spot stuff. Cause I remember when I first started talking about it, like, Almost everyone who I spoke to about it was like, what's that? I never heard of that in my life. And right, now people right. are starting to be a bit more like, oh, yeah, I've, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, I recently saw an article, which I, I need to go back and click through and read it. But it's one of an article about how there are actually 11 different kinds of orgasms that people with vulvas can have. And I thought, wow, you know, what could all of those be? Like, I can think of some, but I'm like, 11? <laughs> it seems like a high yeah, number. I, I never kind of, I always kind of have an issue with, with articles like that because mm -hmm. the orgasm, I mean, you don't need to be touched at all to orgasm technically. Like an orgasm right. basically mm -hmm. happens in your brain in many ways. Yep. And so people are always like, is it possible to have an orgasm from XYZ random thing? And I'm like, I mean, theoretically, yes. It's just like a matter of whether you will actually be able to achieve it in your particular body and brain. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, especially with what we've learned in the past decade or two about the internal clitoris, like I'm increasingly yes. like, I don't know that we need to really like differentiate between all these different types True. of orgasms. Like I think we're touching a bunch of pleasurable zones and some of them are pleasurable enough that they can cause an orgasm. But mm. I don't know. I'm very skeptical of like separating orgasms into body parts like that. Maybe just because sure. like Freud did that and kind of fucked yeah. everything up for like a few centuries. Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks. No, thanks. Jackass. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting because I interviewed someone that was studying that the internal structure of the engorged clitoris. And it's just really interesting to see how it has like these arms, like it's a wishbone and it's almost like legs and lobes. And it's just like, you know, it's not this like, you know, the penis is just this solid thing, you know, and the clitoris is not like that. It's not a solid thing. It's just like more like a web almost, not a web, but it just has like arms that stretch around and mm -hmm. The person I was talking to brought up something really interesting that I had never thought of before. She said, what if the people who enjoy like anal sex or anal orgasms, it's just that their, their clitoris actually just reaches back there and other people in it and other people it doesn't. I thought, wow, that's, that's a good point. They can be different. They could be different sizes and different people. Right. Yeah. I've heard the theory too, that anal penetration allows for like indirect G-spot stimulation through the mm. vaginal wall. And there are people, of course, who think that the G-spot itself is a part of the internal clitoris. So yeah, that that all tracks. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, more more study is needed, I think. But it's just it's very interesting to see what it actually looks like on the inside. And most people don't realize what that is or what it looks like or that it's even some people don't even realize it goes internal. Yeah, I was once wearing a necklace on a date that had a little diagram of the internal clit uh, because I'm a nerd. And (laughs) the person who I was on a date with was like, oh, I like your necklace. Is that the special K logo? And it's just (laughs) definitely one of the funniest things anybody's ever said to me in my life. (laughs) Wow. It's pretty funny. (laughs) Did you tell them what it was? Yeah, because I think it came up in the context of like he was doing he was like licking my clit, but it was like very directly. And I was like, can you do that on the side of my clit? And he Mm. looked at me as if he had never considered the idea that the clitoris is a 3D structure. And Ah. I was like, like has a side, like clearly, I don't know. I was very confused (laughs) by him being confused. And so I did like grab the necklace and I was like, you know, like not here, but over here. And he was like, he was just very confused. Yeah. It's not like a floating bean that floats out and doesn't touch anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> when people call it a bean, I think people, some people might get the wrong idea. Like, oh, it's just this little tiny bean and that's all there is. Yeah. People use a lot of like diminutive and dismissive language about the clit. And like, that's fine if you like that for your own body. But I'm just like, I need more, especially cis men, to understand that it is as central for many vulva havers' Mm -hmm. sexuality as their penis is for their own. Like, uh, it's just something that a lot of people still don't know, even though, like, we've been talking about it for so long. So that's, that's definitely one of the things that I try to emphasize in my work. Oh, yes. Whenever I am talking with people, or I just was actually did an interview with podcast to it. So I always try to say that. I'm like, you realize that the the clitoris, the external clitoris is basically the same thing as the head of your penis. And when I said that to them, they were just like, what? Like they, you know, they didn't like come out and say what, but I could tell they were just like, is she talking like some kind of foreign language? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I, I wrote a song last year called Touch My Clit that I was just like in the mood to write a song about like mm. this this exact topic. And the bridge has some of my favorite lyrics I've ever written. And I said, just so you understand your callousness, the clit and the dick are analogous. Would you yeah. like having your dick ignored every time you scored? Wouldn't you get bored? <laughs> and I just feel like I, I sometimes you just write something and you're like, Mwah, that is exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's fantastic. And that is so true. Yeah. I, yeah. <sighs> I just find it amazing that like there are so many men who are complaining, like I can't get laid or like my girlfriend or my wife doesn't want to fuck me. Yeah. And then you ask them what they're doing when they fuck and they're like not even doing stuff to the clit. And it's like literally if if every time you every single time that you ever had sex, if it was like the person was completely ignoring your dick and acting as if it didn't exist and didn't matter, you also would not want to have sex. I'm betting like you also would probably rather masturbate or just stay home. I so agree. And this is what I get up in arms about people. When I hear about, you know, especially women with vulvas that don't like to have sex, um, they probably weren't getting pleasure. They probably, sadly, they may not have even orgasmed. It's so disturbing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like work. I, I already, when I first started having penetrative sex, I knew the information. I knew the thing about that the clitoris is central for Mm -hmm. most folks with vulvas. And I still felt a sense of 
brokenness and confusion. Like I still was like, for some reason I was expecting that there was going to be magic and fireworks and that suddenly I was going to become a different person sexually. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't really feel like much the first time. Like it really just kind of felt like whatever, which I think is pretty common experience for folks with vulvas. And uh, the feeling of like shame that swept over me as a result, like I just felt so broken. And I know that if I was feeling that way, there must be so many people who are feeling that way without even understanding why. And so, yes. yeah, I view it as like a moral imperative that I that I talk about this stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think somebody I interviewed recently said, you know, nine out of 10 people with vulvas do not come from penetrative sex alone where their clit is not touched. That is yeah. a giant amount of people. Giant. Yeah, I've, I've read different stats on that. I think I've heard anywhere from like 65-ish percent all the way up to like 92 percent. It really kind of depends on the study. And it's also a little bit hard to measure because a lot of times during penetrative sex, you may be getting clitoral stimulation sort of through like body friction or whatever. And it may not be obvious either to you or to whoever's doing the research. But yeah, it does seem to be a pretty high proportion. And in my experience, it it's about the same proportion as people with penises who can who can come with like without their penises being touched, like just have right. prostate orgasms or whatever, which yep. totally makes sense anatomically. And yet people are still like, something's wrong with you if you can't have a vaginal orgasm. And I'm like, again, like Freud, oh why is this to us? I know. I that is so disturbing. And like, you know, that <laughs> like led to so many people faking orgasms and there's so much just wrongness and, and shame and just disgusting. Yep. Yep. I remember one time I was out on a date with a, a guy from Tinder who's like totally cishet guy mm-hmm. and we were having sex or like he he like went down on me and then he was like, how do you feel about intercourse? And I was like, I wish everybody would ask me this question. This is such a great question. <laughs> what I said was like, you know, kind of take or leave it. Like I'm kind of cool with <laughs> doing other stuff. And he was like, yeah, same. I was like, this is great. Thank you. Wow. Good. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, we need to get rid of that preconceived notion of uh, <laughs> that's been propagated by Freud. Yep. So I have one question that I keep forgetting to ask, and I want to bring it up. What do you think about the whole glass dildo thing? You know, and I've heard some people talk about, you know, yeah, it could have like, you can get infections from them. Or some one woman I interviewed said that that is how she figured out how to squirt. What's your mm-hmm. experience with glass dildos? Oh, I'm a big fan of glass dildos. You shouldn't be getting infections from them unless maybe you've dropped it and there's like a crack in it mm-hmm. uh, in which bacteria can get into. The other thing that happens sometimes is if you get really cheap mass-produced glass dildos, sometimes like the the dye on the outside will like start to come off or cause issues. But that's like mm. really, really on the cheap side. Like if you're going to get an inexpensive glass dildo, which is understandable because they can get pretty pricey, Look for one that's clear, like no color, no okay. added anything. That would that would be what I would recommend. And look for one that doesn't look like it has a really thin part that could break really easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, my first ever dildo was a glass dildo. I think I bought it when I was like 17 or something. Mm. And I think it's a really, really great dildo material as long as you are okay with firmness. Like there are some people mm-hmm. for whom firmness is just like always going to be uncomfortable for whatever anatomical reason, and that's fine. But I do think that because a lot of people like firm stimulation on their G-spot or their A-spot or their prostate, it can be a really great material for that. 
Uh, my favorite glass dildo company, unfortunately, does not exist anymore. They were called Fucking Sculptures. Mm, they made nice name. Really, they're sorry. Nice name. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. They actually the one of the people from Fucking Sculptures is someone who I interviewed on Sex City Radio. Um, I was ah. just like obsessed with their stuff. They made these like really beautiful, handmade, just artfully made gorgeous glass dildos. But they had to shut down because like. The expense involved in making handmade glass dildos is like really, really high. It's just they were charging very high prices and people were complaining about their prices. But like their luxury toys, like, the, you know, their handmade products. Mm -hmm. um, but I was able to buy, I think, four of them, which was like not easy for me back then because I was like, <laughs> I think I was in university and like mm. just logging on the side. Like I had to save up and scrimp and save for these dildos but like i'm so glad that i that i did it because like yeah i think since they closed their doors there has not been another glass toy company that i've been as excited about interesting yeah that's one i have not acquired yet but i keep hearing things about it i have a friend who really likes it too she's like you have to be careful because you can do damage with it because of you know the nature of it being so firm Mm -hmm. what yeah, I mean, that's true with uh, that's true with some other materials too, like stainless steel or oh, sure. uh, ceramic or stone, like anything that's firm, there's always going to be a risk. But you just got to, you know, use a lot of lube, go slow. I often am hesitant to give a firm dildo right away to a new partner to use on me mm -hmm. uh, because they just like if they don't know my body really well, there is a higher yeah. risk of injury. But once they kind of know where everything is, I, I can have them like pound me with a glass or steel dildo. And that's like probably some of my favorite ways to have sex. Interesting. That's interesting. So do you find any difference? I guess I never thought about that. The difference between a glass one and a stone one. Uh, maybe they're pretty similar. Stone usually will be heavier. Depends on the stone, depends on the glass, because mm -hmm. different types of glass weigh different things. But and then also sometimes stone will have like a bit more of a texture to it, depending on how it was glazed. Mm. But there's also just like not as many stone dildos out there. I think I've only tried two or three maybe ever. They are harder to find. Uh, they both uh, hold temperature really well, which is nice. Oh. You can put them in like a, a bowl of warm or cold water before you use them. Sure. And yeah, they're both on the firmer side. So really good if you're trying to squirt or trying to like have a prostate orgasm or something like that. Interesting. I never would have even thought of that. I <laughs> guess <laughs> I don't have those. So I haven't really investigated it very much. I've only talked to a few people about it. Very, very interesting. So is there anything else that you would love to talk about or mention before we end? I don't think so. We covered uh, a lot of stuff. We did. We did. Thank you so much for talking with me. This has been really fun and informative and really excited to share it. And oh, and about your book. Let's talk about that one more time real quick. So you have the new one coming out in pre-sale right now. Uh, talk 200 words to help you talk about gender and sexuality. Is that right? Sexuality and gender. Yes. They, did, they gender. flipped the order on me somewhat recently, but oh, okay. They, yeah. <laughs> now it is officially 200 words to help you talk about sexuality and gender. That's not very nice of them to flip it on you. 
<laughs> yeah, it happened with the title, the other one, too. They originally said it was going to be called 101 Kinky Things That Even You Can Do. And then mm. I had that in like my bios everywhere. And then I saw the, the finished cover and it had no that. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess my book title is different than I thought it was. Jeez. Oh, nice of them to inform you, huh? <laughs> That's kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's it's no big deal. It it, yeah. it turned out for the best. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Oh, and one other thing I want to say, where can people find you? We talked a little bit about Twitter. Are you on other um, social media sites? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at girly underscore juice. That's G-I-R-L-Y underscore J-U-I-C-E. My sex blog is at girlyjuice.net. I've been writing there for over 10 years. So there's a lot of stuff there, including over 300 sex toy reviews. Mm-hmm. My portfolio of stuff for other publications you can find at katewritesaboutsex.com. And you can find 101 Kinky Things at 101kinkythings.com. And you can look up my podcasts, The Dildorks and Question Box, wherever you get your podcasts. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited that you took time to talk with me. And I, I really thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Okay, you have a good day. Yeah, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Pink Infinity Publishing, LLC, for sponsoring this podcast episode. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Kate and all the things she has to say and share. She has a lot of experience. She's studied a lot about sex, written a lot about it, and she was a joy to talk to. I really enjoyed it, and I really learned a lot, and I just had a blast. So thank you, Kate, for coming on my podcast. I will put all of her links down in the podcast notes so that you can find her where she is across the internet. I will also include, sorry, I will also include my links, my link tree to where you can find me. I'll restart to where you can find me all over the internet. I have books on Amazon. You can check out my erotic romance books on Amazon, as well as my erotic romance audiobooks I have narrated for myself and for other erotica authors. Please check me out, support my podcast, and give me a rating, give me a review. I would love to hear your thoughts. And come back again and listen, enjoy, get excited. I hope you do. I hope you come back again and again. And I hope you have an amazing, sexy fucking day. Love ya. Ready for some spring cleaning of your beard and groin hairs? Try out Manscaped products where you can get 20% off with my new code RUIN, R-U-A-N, to get 20% off and free shipping. In order to get the discount, use the promo code RUIN, R-U-A-N, to do that spring cleaning you get yourself ready for sexy times. Heat up your spring with a new shave, a new trim. Perhaps try going bare. Get more skin smacks in the bedroom, if you know what I mean.